Well, last week we were in the heavy chapter of chapter 11, which sitting in the historical action of David committing adultery, trying to cover up that adultery with lies and falsehoods. And when he fails in his scheming to cover up his sin, he ends up committing murder, having Uriah killed at the hands of the Ammonites. And chapter 11 ends with this one statement, says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And we can say, well, yeah, right? Is adultery, you know, pretty naughty? Is murder pretty naughty? I mean, we can all stand in, in agreement saying that that was absolutely atrocious behavior in David's life. This is the issue with David, is David was a man, he's defined as a man after God's heart. That's why God chose him, selected him, anointed him. So there's parts of when we watch David. For me, as I remember David, unfortunately, this sin of his is one of the first things that pops into my mind. Because now, David, this anointed king, a man after God's own heart, is also labor, labeled as this adulterer and murderer. I remember his sin. But one of the things we're going to sit in today is we're not just, we don't just sit there and remember David's sin. God took the evil in David's life and his behavior, and he brings about this incredible psalm, Psalm 51. I have read Psalm 51 more than any other psalm in the Bible. I have probably read through that more than any other uh, scripture in the Bible. Because again, to me, it just it gets to the heart of the matter. Anytime I am off with God, I'm remembered of these verses and these passages. Anytime that I'm feeling like I'm drifting at all, not even in sin, just, Lord, it's, I, I need you to create in me a, a clean heart. I need joy in my salvation. Lord, I want to be in right relationship with you so I can go and tell others how incredible and beautiful you are. So we're going to sit in... David getting confronted by God in his sin, and we're going to sit in David's confession and that restoration that happens. So, in to get us all on an equal footing with David, we're told throughout the Word of God that there's not a single one of us does good. By definition, we are born into this body of death. We are born with the nature of sin. Every single one of us is tainted. We're not pure. We're not holy. Within each of us, there, we are off as we are placed in the balance in comparison to the purity and holiness of the Almighty God. So we all abide in this taint. There's not a single one of us who does good. I'm going to give you an example, and this could be extremely offensive, but if it's offensive, it's, one of, it's a thought that would make you aware that you're not fully pressing into the understanding of what the gospel communicates. And this is the statement. A forgiven murderer is in a better position than a self-righteous churchgoer. Listen to that. David is a forgiven murderer. 
And he is in a better position with God through his confession, through his repentance, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ than a self-righteous individual who has never committed adultery, who has never committed murder, goes to church every single weekend and doesn't depend upon the love and the grace and the mercy of God, but depends upon their own self-righteousness and their own works. An example would be we're told that Ted Bundy, through Chuck Colson and Prison Fellowship, that Ted Bundy made a repentant confession in Jesus Christ. He was a violent rapist and a violent murderer, serial rapist, serial murderer, and we are told through that testimony, if his confession is real, when he was executed, he opened his eyes into the face of his Savior. And that can be extremely offensive for one who said, wait, I have never done anything like that. But the Bible puts us all in the same playing field. We're all tainted. Yes, there are, there are different levels of sin, absolutely. But when it comes to the path of death and the path of life, every single human being, we are told, is on a path of death, born into disobedience, born as a child of wrath, until this salvation event occurs through repentance and confession and who Jesus Christ is and what it is that he has done in history and who he is currently now. It's that faith that puts us in this position of we are now on the path of life. So when we sit in David's sin, it's really easy to point finger at these really big sins, you know, the big categories. But at the same time, we also need to sit in that conviction of our own life and our own relationship. I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know if you are in absolute open rebellion against your creator. And I don't know if you're just going to sit in this morning and listen to what we're going to go through in just humble gratitude at the love that God has for each and every one of us. Yesterday, as I was just sitting with the Lord, I'm, I'm weeping just in gratitude for, I know who I was, sitting in confession again and just going through all my list of sins with him and just, Lord, I can't, I, it's, I'm thankful, tearfully and joyfully thankful of what I have been forgiven of. And not only that, but he has given me joy he has kept me clean. He has put me in a position where I get and go tell sinners about his grace and his mercy and his love, hoping that anybody that's listening is responding to him and turning to him. This morning, as I'm going through the exact same text, I have no tears, but the same wonder is in my heart. But I want us to make sure that we all understand that all sin is condemned by God. So through his word, he has made known himself. He has made known his truth. Anything that is separate from him against his will is defined as sin. And through his word, he has placed all sin under condemnation. Little sins, big sins. All Adam and Eve did was disobeyed God. Adam and Eve didn't commit murder. They didn't commit adultery. They just did something that God said, don't do this. It was coming to with a diet, with a piece of food. That simple sin brought death into their life because they were disobedient. 
They brought a taint into their lives. All of humanity has inherited that taint, and that taint throughout all human history, all of it is condemned as separate from the Creator. This has nothing to do with His nature and His character. And then we have this promise. He's done everything in our lives to keep us, to bring us to Him, to keep us in Him, and to give us a hope that we have His life for all the future. So as we sit in all of that as a foundation, listening to this statement that the thing that David did to displease the Lord, we're left with a cliffhanger. In the text, again, the, the Old Testament, it's not broken into chapters and verses. The end of chapter 11 would have just rolled into chapter 12. But as a, as a theme, we're left with, what do you think God is going to do? In, in your own heart, without, if you didn't know the story about what God's going to do, if you know somebody in your life, they just, in our culture, in our time, somebody commits adultery and then commits murder to, hire, uh, to hide that adultery, what do you want? You want justice, don't you? That person needs to be arrested, they need to be arraigned, they need to go through a trial, and they need to spend the rest of their life in jail, and if you're really hardcore, they need to be executed. Is that not what we'd say in our culture? So what do you think God ought to do to David? Execute him? Oh, I praise God for his mercy, because I deserve to be dead over and over again. All right, we're going to read through all of chapter 12, because that'll keep me on pace with our time. So chapter 12 says, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had brought, bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity, no compassion. And Nathan said to David, You're the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why? Why have you despised the commandment? It's literally, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. 
because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity, evil, against you from your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house. And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. David therefore pleaded with God for the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. So the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Then on the seventh day it came to pass that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him, and he would, he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm. When David saw that the servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So David arose from the ground washed and anointed himself, and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servant said to him, Why is, What is this that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her and lay with her. So she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon which means peaceful. Now the Lord loved him, and he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Jedidiah means greatly beloved of the Lord, one who is greatly loved. Verse 26, Now Joab fought against Rabbah, and of the people of Ammon, and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah, and I have taken the city's water supply. Now therefore, gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called after my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah, fought against it, and took it. Then he took the king's crown from his head. It weighed, its weight was a talent of gold with precious stones, 
and it was set on David's head. Also, he brought, he brought out the spoil of the city in great abundance, and he brought out the people who were in it, and put them to work with saws and with iron picks and iron axes, and made them cross over the, uh, to the brickworks. So he did to all the cities of the people of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Israel. Starting at the end here, just this, this whole scene of Rabbah being captured. If it is in time sequence, well, it's not in time sequence, let's put it that way. For Bathsheba to go through the first pregnancy, for the child to die, for her to conceive a second pregnancy, and for that child to die, there would be a minimum of a couple of years of Israel laying siege to Rabbah. That didn't happen. What is being given to us is it's a thematic bookend of what God is addressing in the life of David in this passage. This began with a war that was occurring, and it was in the midst of that war that David chose to remain home rather than going out to battle, and here's the conclusion of the matter of that battle. Also, it's out of time order, because when you sit with Bathsheba delivering Solomon, I can't remember if Solomon's listed as the third son of Bathsheba or the fourth son. So she had multiple sons before Solomon. So again, there's an extended period of time going on, but what's being defined here for us is, again, the next king of Israel after David dies, introducing Solomon to us, and ultimately God's love for Solomon, which is ought to kind of sit us back in our seats a little bit at the mercy of God. Why would God choose Solomon, a child of David and Bathsheba, to inherit this eternal kingdom that God promised to David and to his descendants. And again, placing Solomon and Bathsheba in the line of Jesus. Pretty incredible truths. Let's go back to verse 1 as we sit in this. Also, so the Lord sending Nathan. So Nathan is a trusted friend, advisor, and prophet in David's life. Nathan is the one that David expressed his desire to build God a house um, in that conversation and God promising through Nathan that God was going to build David a house rather than David building God a house. So that's, that's Nathan. As you sit in the children of Bathsheba, one of those sons is named Nathan. And I want you to sit with the weight because how many of you like to be confronted how many of you want to name a child after your confronter? I want you to just sit in the weight and the relationship of Nathan to David. So important and such a major event in David's life that one of the sons that is born to Bathsheba, he chooses to name after the prophet that came and confronted him with his sin with Bathsheba in the first place. And here's the mercy and the tenderness of God. In David's sin, God could have just struck David and killed him. But God is always giving us space to repent, space to turn. Throughout David's life, God has always been there with him. David has had his ups and his downs. I want to read this really quick. We don't have time to read through Psalm 32, but there are, there's a line that I want to read from it. I'd encourage you to go read. It's all about how blessed is the man, the woman, who's been forgiven of their sins. But David says this in Psalm 32, 3 and 4. He says, When I kept silent, my bones grew old. 
through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. So in this season between David's sin and the moment that God sends Nathan to go and confront David of his sin, David is not ignorant in regards to what it is that he's done. He's being eaten up inside. He knows he is out of step with the Lord, but he's refusing to have a confessional and repentant conversation with God. He is saying that in this season in my life, I was shriveling up on the inside. My relationship with God was shriveling up. My relationship with other human beings was shriveling up. I was a miserable soul. My bones were growing old. My vitality was gone. My strength was gone. I couldn't focus. I couldn't think. I couldn't do my job. I couldn't be engaged in relationships because my sin was always before me. But David's issue, and I don't know why, But in that season, in that period of time, he refused to go and say some simple words to God. We're told his simple words at the end of Nathan's confrontation with him is that I have sinned against the Lord. Now, we're going to go to Psalm 51 and sit in some more details of that conversation. But all David had to do was have those simple words. And the privacy of his life with nobody else around... David refused to enter into a repentant and confessional conversation with God with a major, major sin. Now, how often do we refuse to have the conversations with God just for little sins? All those little things that we don't do that God tells us to do, all those little things that we do do that God tells us not to do, We make all kinds of reasons and justifications why I don't want to have a conversation with God. God knows what I've done. It's it's all good. God's gracious. He's merciful. He's forgiving. I I don't need to have the conversation. Yes, you do. Jesus, we're told in 1 John that Jesus, that he is, when we confess, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. When you don't confess, there's, there's, it's, it's off. I'm not going to say that you lose your salvation, you step in and out of relationship with the Lord and those kinds of things, but I know what it's like to be a sinning Christian and just in misery and making everybody else around me miserable also, just because in my pride, I am refusing to go and have a simple conversation with God. Why? Because it's uncomfortable. So David's in that position of refusal. So God sends a faithful man, a faithful brother, and a faithful prophet to his life to tap him on the chest. And he gives him a parable. He gives him the imagery. The rich man represents David. The poor man is representing Uriah. The singular lamb is representing Bathsheba. The multiple lambs and all the riches are representing David's harem of women. And in that picture, it wells up the story, the parable that Nathan presents to David, it wells up anger in David because he's a bitter soul. 
He's hearing about the sin of somebody else, and oh boy, how easy it is to pick up the stone and throw it in another human soul when you're sitting in your own guilt and conviction and you're refusing to get yourself right with the Lord through Jesus Christ. The easiest thing to do is to curse the darkness. The easiest thing to do is to judge somebody else's sin. Why? Because that gets your eyes off of yourself, and now I have an object of something that is easily defined as wrong, and I can go pick at that while I ignore what's going on inside of my own head. Consistent human behavior because of the taint. We all do it. But here, David's anger wells up. He goes beyond the law that he is supposed to be the judge of and presiding over. Nathan presenting this legal case to David that David thinks he needs to sit as judge. That man deserves to die. And what David fails to recognize is he's pronouncing his own judgment. The man who steals an animal from another man does not deserve to die. Restoring fourfold is part of the law. So there David is correct. The man who commits adultery according to the word of God is to be cut off and executed from the culture, from the land, from the people of Israel. The man who commits adultery is to be cut off is what God's word says in the Old Testament. How much smaller would our population be? I mean, it's, 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 it's harsh. It's hard. But you look at all the damage that occurs. Those warnings, again, it's to elevate the seriousness of what that involves. But it's also to be a major warning for none of us to go down that direction because of the damage that it does and because of the consequences. David didn't have those roadblocks in his life. So he went down, and now that he's being confronted by somebody else's sin, that person needs to die. And ultimately, again, in the imagery, he is condemning himself. And Nathan, and how do you hear Nathan's voice when he says, David, you're the man? Is he, you're the man, you jerk? Or is it David? You're the man. You deserve to die. You have taken what is not yours. Thus says the Lord. I am the one who made you. I am the one who put you in the position that you're in. I called you. I anointed you. Your life is to image my son to my people. And you broke it. You're the man, David. I gave you everything. And if what I have given you is not enough, I would have given you more. All you have to do is ask. This is an awesome promise that we have through Jesus, through our relationship with the Father. Do you need something? Do you want something? Knock on the door. Ask. Do you feel a lack in your life? Do you feel a lack in your relationship with him, a lack in your relationship with your spouse, with your friends? You want a degree. What, do you, what are your goals in life? How has he wired you? He has told you, you have the freedom to ask him for anything. Ephesians 3.20, he will do exceedingly, abundantly, more, above, beyond all that we would even dream of asking him for. He's going to do it. 
But he's always constantly inviting us into this relationship. He says, you don't have because you don't ask. Or you also don't have because what you're asking for is wrong. And this is what's beautiful in the relationship that we have with the Lord, that if you're asking him, if you're looking to him and seeking him, if you're asking for something that's wrong, he's going to correct you. Lord, I want another wife. No. Right? If it's wrong, he's going to correct you. He's going to convict you. He's going to lead your heart down the right path. We're told in Romans chapter 8, again, the end of Romans chapter 7, Paul's talking about the wretched man that he is. Who's going to save me from my body of death? He begins to praise Jesus Christ. We don't walk in the flesh. We walk in the Spirit. And as we walk in the Spirit, we have this promise that the Holy Spirit is praying through us. That as you're in relationship with God, he is the one that is leading your mind and leading your heart as you're seeking him, as you're asking. He's, he's so faithful to walk us down this process. I love that statement that he gave to David because it's, listen, and I can sit in this just in my own heart. Blake, if what I've given you in life, if, it, if it's not enough for you and you're yearning and you're lusting and you're desiring for more, whatever the more may be, ask. Let's have a conversation. And if you're off, I'm going to help correct your heart in that sanctification process and help you to ask for what my will is in your life. And that's part of the asking too. Lord, I'm asking for this but not my will be done. Your will be done in every aspect of my life. There is a link here in the question from God to David through Nathan. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? And then a couple of sentences later, he says, the consequences are because you've despised me. God, again, linking his word to himself. He's the source of his word. The commandments that we have in the Old Testament and New Testament, it's the revelation of him. This is his mind. This is his heart. These are his words. If you don't like this document, you don't like God. Uncomfortable? There's a whole bunch of words that I don't like in here. In fact, we're going to talk about one of them in a minute. Why did God not kill David? Why did he kill the baby? That's hard, read a lot of commentaries, go through a lot of different justifications for why people think God executed the child and not David. And I don't, every single one of the answers fails in comparison to what God says, and we'll, we'll sit here in a minute. But again, God's word, he links it to himself in all ways, We're not going to sit in his consequences this morning, but when we turn to chapter 13 next week, the rest of 2 Samuel is a fulfillment of the consequences in David's life in regards to his sin. So again, the bright and shining star David as the anointed Christ, as the anointed Messiah, the anointed king of the Old Testament, and how he's to image Jesus to us, that light, that brightness is lost through his sin. And then we watch him as a broken and contrite man and the consequences of his sin in his life and how he continues to trust in and look to the Lord. And that's what we're going to sit in for multiple weeks coming ahead because his life is a mess. The promise is that the sword is never going to depart from his house. 
that he's going to raise up adversity from within his house, his own kids. Absalom is going to sleep with David's wives. Messed up. David's confession to Nathan is, I have sinned in the Lord. We are going to spend an extended period of time in that when we get to Psalm 51. But this idea of sinning, it's, it's missing the mark. It's doing wrong, causing offense to God. You're understanding that you're, you're culpable in that confession. You're bearing the loss of what the sin has caused. That All of that is in that idea of this confession. I've sinned against the Lord. And then we have this incredible statement from Nathan to David that Yahweh, he's put away your sin. He's, he's passed over that sin because of his confession. He shall not die but this is, the, this is the reason that God gives for why the child died. So he says, Because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child who is born to you shall surely die. So God is linking, again, the death of the child to the blasphemy that the enemies of the Lord are stepping into because of David's action and behavior. So, in all the other reasons that people list out, God is saying why. Because if this child continues to live, he will be a constant point of the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme God. Now, did this child in its short life is it spending eternity separated for, from God, or is it sp spending eternity with the Lord? Without a doubt for me, this child did not have many days on this earth, but this child is living in eternity with our Almighty God. So, before you wag your finger at God and said that, say that God did something wrong, this is what faith does. Faith trusts in Yahweh. Lord, I don't understand this. I don't fully understand the reasons why. I read the statement why. I understand that you know, sin gives opportunity, occasion for the enemies to blaspheme you, to turn people away from you, to cause stumbling blocks. Like, I get all that, Lord. Um, but I get that you're the protector of life, that you're the Savior. So when I sit in this judgment of David's sin and the judgment falling upon the child, Lord, that's, that's hard to swallow. But I trust you. And at the same time, it brings about extra layers of obstacles in my life, knowing and understanding that if I choose to go down a path of darkness, my children will suffer because of my sins. My, the consequences that are going to come about because of my darkness and my stupidity and my rebellion will have consequence in my children's life. Therefore, Man, just another reason to add to the list, Lord, keep me from ever going down that path of darkness. Lord strikes the child, the child dies. We don't need to go through David's fasting, praying, seeking, other than this position of, of worship and just trusting in the Lord. David is sitting in all of this guilt. Bathsheba is holding this child as it passes away. They know that this child has just died because of their sin. 
But what does David do at the end of that? Goes, washes his face, he changes his clothes, and he goes and presents himself to the Lord and worships. God, and then, we're, well, we're going to sit in the confession. Let's turn to, let's turn to Psalm 51. Because this is where all the weight of David's confession, his prayer, his worship of the Lord. How is it that God (laughs) fill in the blank? Psalm 51, its title says, it's to the chief musician that this is a psalm, a kingdom melody of David. When Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone, after he had gone into Bathsheba, went away from the Lord and to another. The psalm is broken into just two major sections, focus on, focusing on being reconciled with the Lord and the transformation that needs to occur in all of us. Verse 1 says, Have mercy upon me, O God. According to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Reconciliation, forgiveness, confession, life. Everything is on the foundation that God is love. David, as he begins to sing, as he begins to confess, as he begins to repent, he's beginning in the, the reality that he knows who God is and the prayer of God, may you have mercy upon me according to who you are, your nature, your character, your loving kindness, your tender mercies, Lord. I'm looking to you because I need help. There's three imperatives here. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. This is, this is David crying out to God for, um, for his crime, for his rebellion, for his perversity, for his punishment, for all the ways that he missed Blaspheme God, gave occasion to the enemies to blaspheme God. This event in his life and all of its consequences. In our modern vernacular, it would be highlighting a paragraph and word and hitting delete. God, I need you to erase it. I need you to blot out my crime. I need you to wash me thoroughly from my guilt and uh, you know, the punishment uh, that I deserve because I know that I am guilty. That you would cleanse me from my sin. I hope these are words that you know very well in your relationship with God whether it's a category of sin in your life that you define as large and exceptional and singular, or if it's something that's small and routine and regular, that when you're confronted by God, 
that you're looking to him in all of his attributes, his nature and his character, and that you're crying out to him, you're, the knowledge that you need to be cleansed and washed is what's going on. In verse 3, what is David doing? He's acknowledging, I know it, I notice it, I see it, and now I'm saying it to you, God. I am acknowledging to you that I committed adultery. Here is where I lied. Here is where I was off. Here is how I got into that position in the first place. Here is how I killed Uriah. This is why I did it. This is what was going on. Just pouring out his heart. I acknowledge my sin. I acknowledge my transgressions. I acknowledge my crime. My sin is always before me. When you sit with David in that period of time as he is withholding and not having a conversation with God, his sin was before his fate, in his presence, moment by moment, day by day. And I pray that that would be the conviction for every single one of us, that if I'm out of step, if you are out of step with the Lord, may it always be in your presence. May you not be able to sidestep it. May you not be able to ignore it. But may God's hand be heavy upon you until you come to this kind of heart and this kind of position. God, I acknowledge my transgression. My sin is always before me. It's huge, Lord. I can't see anything else against you, you only, have I sinned. Did David sin against Bathsheba? Yes. Did he sin against other friendships and relationships? Yes. Did he sin against Uriah? Yes. But ultimately, God's the one who laid down the law. God is truth. God is life. God is love. When we miss, what are we missing? We're not missing the image of another human being. We are missing the image of our creator against you and you only have I missed. I've done this evil in your sight. That you may be found just, that you may be found right when you speak. And blameless, you judge. Today's the day of salvation. Now is the moment of confession. You know, you know where God is confronting you and convicting you. And this is not just, again, the big categories of sin. It's, God, you've told me to have faith. When I confess to you, I don't trust you. You've promised to provide for me, but I don't see the provision. You've told me not to gossip, Lord, but that's all I find myself doing. You told me not to be a judge, but I judge people day in and day out. You've told me not to lust, Lord, but oh boy, do I lust. You've told me not to be filled with pride, but to be humble, but boy, do I exalt myself over others. The list goes on. And on and on. My role 
is to make sure that you don't escape that moment of conviction and confrontation. You need not to seek to escape the heavy hand of God in your life when his hand needs to be there in all of his weight, in all of his glory. And all he's looking for is a simple conversation. I acknowledge, Lord, you are just and you are blameless. Verse 5 is this idea of the taint that we are all born with. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. This is not saying that sex is a sin and evil and naughty and dirty. This isn't saying that his mom did something inappropriate or anything like that. David is acknowledging his nature and his character in contrast to the nature and character of God. From the moment I was created, Lord, I'm tainted. You know me. You know my brokenness. And you've done everything to bring about your righteousness in my life. Behold, Lord, even though I, am, I was formed in my mother's womb, and there you are knitting me and forming me and knowing me, that taint was there, but what do you desire? See it, behold it, Lord. You desire truth. You desire firmness in my inward parts, in my heart, in my mind, in my soul, in all that I am, in the hidden part, Lord. You will make me to know your wisdom. Yeah, we're all born with this deficiency, but there you are in all of your truth, in all of your glory, in all of your wisdom you are pursuing, making yourself known to me. You will make me to be something that I am not. Verse 7, purge me. This word for purge, it's the exact same word for sin in, you know, in, in the context is how you translate it. It's the idea that there's this sin offering. There's a direct relationship to sin when, it's, when he's saying purge me with hyssop. Hyssop is this plant, especially uh, you see it in um, Exodus 12 at the Passover. The hyssop is what was dipped into the blood sacrifice and that's what was used to anoint the blood on the lintel and the doorpost of the home so that the Lord would pass over, purge me with hyssop and what? And I shall be clean. Again, there, you may need this confession of you don't believe that God can forgive you. You don't believe that God can heal you and cleanse you and sanctify you. It's wrong. And it's a sin to say that God can't because he says that he can and that he will. If you purge me, I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Sin made me scarlet. You wash me in the blood of your son. I will be whiter than snow. Make me, Lord. Lord, make me. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Again, sit in that position with David in just that midst of misery and yuck and bitterness and anger and woe is me, I'm a loser of sin emotions. And what he is saying, Lord, if you, you are the one who can make me hear joy because of who you are 
and the cleansing that you bring about. Make me to hear joy and gladness. That the bones that you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, Lord. Blot out, delete, erase all of my iniquities. It's playing this this morning. If you guys, if you guys like old music, Keith Green. I've, I've listened to this song hundreds of times. He's just singing verses 10 and 11. Create in me a clean heart. Create in me. Make, create. Make something that does not exist. Bring it into existence. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. This is where my emotion comes out in this passage now. I remember being in those days where it's that ongoing confession of sin and Lord, like my heart is evil and it's dark and it's black and it needs to be restored to being well down the road with the Lord to be able to celebrate the cleanness that he's brought about in my soul. It's astonishing to me and it's only been brought about from him. There are certain things in my life that I've looked to the Lord for cleansing and forgiveness and help where it's just been an instant. There's been other things in my life where I've continued to seek him. Yes, I have the cleansing. Yes, I have the forgiveness. But there's the stinking daily battle. And it's been 20 years down the road. And then on a day, it's gone. And it's no longer a thought. It's no longer a process. How he transforms and creates this transformation, sanctification process. It's awesome. Renew, renew a steadfast spirit within me. Lord, before all this happened, David could say that he was steadfast with the Lord. And something happened, something got off. A hand grenade was dropped. And now he's looking to the Lord for restoration. Renew, bring it about again, Lord, a steadfast spirit within me. Well, cast me away from your presence, Lord. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. David had witnessed God take his Holy Spirit from Saul. Have you witnessed an individual that you would define, knows the Lord, walking with the Lord, where they have abandoned the Lord, where you could say that the Holy Spirit has been removed the Holy Spirit of convictions gone. They're not convicted of their sin anymore. For us, believers in Christ, the Holy Spirit has taken up residence within through faith in Christ. There is not a, um, a coming and going of our God in and out of our lives. This is don't take away your covering. Don't take away your wisdom. Don't take away your teaching. Don't take away your power. Lord, cleanse me and heal me and restore me. Holy Spirit, may you be the king of my soul. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. <laughs> Christians, we ought to be stinking happy. Why? Because if you know what it is that you've been forgiven of, Jesus tells us, you know, when the, 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 the woman that's filled with sin comes, this is in Luke chapter 7, she's anointing Jesus' feet, you know, weeping, just the whole scene, and people are sitting there going, ooh, like if Jesus knew who was touching him, he would be, you know, just that whole emotion of that ick of somebody else. Jesus points out, the person who has been forgiven much, 
If you know who you used to be and you know what it is that the Lord has forgiven you of, you ought to be the happiest individual on the face of the planet, and I am preaching to myself. I have no reason to be a downer Eeyore in my relationship with the Lord. Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. I know what it is that you've forgiven me of. I know what it is that you've cleansed me of. I know the life that you've given to me, and I find it absolutely amazing, and I have that hope of the future. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, but... I'm willing to keep on waiting because I want everyone to know the joy of your salvation. Uphold me by your generous spirit. Then what am I going to do? Again, here's, here's a firm resolve in David's life. He's looking in this, this foundation of God's love. He's looking to be cleansed, and he's confessing, and he's repenting, and he's receiving that forgiveness of the Lord, and he knows that the Lord is going to answer his prayer, and when you put me back in the place where I ought to be, then, Lord, then I have the firm resolve. I'm going to tell everybody that's willing to listen about you, because you are awesome. Then I will teach transgressors, criminals, sinners, those who are filled with the guilt of sin, I will teach them your ways, Lord, the way of life. And sinners shall be converted to you, Lord, because there you are confronting, convicting, and bringing about confession from others. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. Direct for David, the bloodshed killing Uriah. This term in the Hebrew is also just deliver me from the guilt of blood guilt of all sins. O oh God, the God of my salvation, my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. This is why we worship church. Every week that we come in here, we want our hearts and our mouths singing aloud of his righteousness of his love, of his wonder. Oh, Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. Give me the opportunity, Lord, to praise you and to express my gratitude continually for what it is that I have done, that you have forgiven me of, through the sacrifice of your son, this mouth right here, Lord, even though it sounds like a dying cat, I will show forth your praise. Do not, you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. The broken spirit there is a smashed, shattered, and burst spirit. And a contrite heart is a crushed heart heart. The language is expressing that the opposite of pride and humility. David was, he's saying, you know, you've crushed my bones and I'm, I'm broken on the inside. I'm being eaten alive. My sin is always before me. The contriteness of that heart, that position is, isn't what God was desiring him. It was the, that position of humility rather than holding on the pride rather than being afraid of having that conversation with god that broken and contrite heart it's 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 the blessed are those who are poor in spirit blessed are those who mourn blessed are those who are grieving blessed are those who are in this position of brokenness and humility realizing your righteousness is nothing 
Your self-righteousness is just like filthy rags before the Lord. It's nothing. None of us do good. We're all tainted. Lord, I understand that and I recognize that. There's nothing that I can do to bring about your light and your life and your forgiveness and your cleansing except the singular thing that you tell me to do, which is to believe in not only with my heart but to confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. We could, today we could say build the walls of the church. Build the walls of that new Jerusalem that you've promised. It is coming. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bowls on your altar. Worship team, come on up. As the worship team comes up, you know, we're going to have communion together. And in communion, again, this is the command of Christ to us that as often as we gather together, we'd remember his body, that we'd remember his blood, his sacrifice. The subject matter that we're talking about today, this, for me, this is the purpose of communion in my soul and my relationship with God. Is that week after week, as often as we gather together as a church, for me, I've typically been studying a passage for an extended period of time. I'm sitting with the Lord. I'm praying. I have an understanding of what it is that he wants me to communicate. But it's always an end for me to where, Lord, is there something in me through this passage that you need to confront me in? I'm asking that you would examine my heart and my mind and my soul and my life, my actions. What am I doing day by day? What are my plans for the future? Lord, is there anywhere off in me Am I drifting at all? Am I in danger? Just all of these questions that we ask before God as we take the elements and we sit and pause for a minute. Lord, here I am. And with the disciples, is it me, Lord? Am I the one who's going to betray you? Am I the one who's going to be rebellious to you? Am I the one who is going to run away from you when the hard times come? So as we worship, come and grab communion, but ask the Holy Spirit to be speaking to you. For some of us, listen, this message may not be specifically for you. Yes, it's a reminder, and you may not be off with the Lord, but maybe you have somebody in your life that's doing a David. They've dropped their grenade. The consequences are already there. Their life is a mess. They know who Jesus is, but they're refusing to have a conversation with him. Maybe that's the person that you need to spend the next few minutes praying for. And God, if, if I need to be a Nathan, I'll do it. But give me the passion of Nathan and the truth and the power of Nathan that when I come to this person, with the words that you've given to me to speak to them. <laughs> that the impact of that, would that they'd be willing to name a child after me. Right? And if you're blank in both of those spaces, 
This is your time just to sit in gratitude. Lord, I know who I was, and I know who you've made me to be. I thank you, and I will thank you for all eternity. Let's worship.